Hello and welcome to Vibrant Lives podcast. This podcast is dedicated to your health and well-being and in it I interview experts about nutrition, physical health, mental health and I deliver my five-minute food fact series which are short episodes where I discuss nutrition-related topics. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host. I'm a lawyer turned nutritionist and I'm on a quest to learn as much as I possibly can about living a healthy, active and fulfilling life, which I would call a vibrant life, and sharing what I learn with you here on this podcast. The health and nutrition space can be a confusing one where information and misinformation mingle and untangling fact from fiction and identifying reliable, trustworthy sources of information is not always straightforward. My aim is to help you do that by speaking with knowledgeable guests who can explain their area of expertise in an accessible way and provide you with practical tips that you can use to improve your own well-being. Before I introduce today's guest, I'll quickly acknowledge that any information or advice provided in Vibrant Life's podcast is not intended to be used to treat or prevent medical conditions and it's never a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today, I'm very happy to be here with life coach Stephanie Noon of Live Life Coaching. From my understanding, life coaching is about guiding people through a process of discovery about themselves to help them live the life that they desire. Steph is a great proponent of using positive psychology tools and interventions to help her clients enhance their well-being and their resilience. So I certainly look forward to hearing more about that. Hi, Steph. Welcome to Vibrant Lives Podcast. Hey, Amanda. So good to be here with you. Thank you so much. So, Steph, I'd like to start with some quick fire questions to get to know a little bit about you outside your work as a life coach. Mm -hmm. Steph, where did you grow up? I actually grew up, it was then really considered country, but um, McLaren Vale, halfway really between McLaren Vale and Wollonga, and um, it was really, really lovely, free childhood. Yeah, I bet. It's so beautiful there, isn't mm. it? Mm. And your favourite form of exercise? Well, I'm a little biased because I'm a sprinter, so I, I love sprinting. I yeah. love the feeling of the power of a sprint. Yeah. Excellent. And we are going to come back to that a bit <laughs> later in the podcast. Your go-to meal for dinner? Oh, it, it's always, I'm a vegetarian, so it's always something stacked full of vegetables, probably a vegetable curry. Yum. Actually, I love vegetable curry too, mm. and it's easy to cook. Mm. What are you currently reading? Oh, it's amazing. I'm reading um, Atlas of the Heart by Brené Brown. Oh, yes. You've heard of it? I have, and I know that you're a big fan of hers. Yes, I am. Very, very much love her, and this book does not disappoint. Excellent. And are you listening to anything that you're enjoying at the moment, perhaps some music, podcast, mm -hmm. audio book? I'm a... I consume podcasts all the time. I'm currently listening to or nearly finished one that excites me so much called Lifespan with um, it's David Sinclair. Um, yes. I highly recommend it. Have you got it? Have you got the I've, book? I've got his book oh, yeah. up there. Yeah. Um, oh, that would be very interesting. I'll put a link to that in the show notes mm. for anyone who wants to follow up with that one. And Steph, your dream holiday destination. <laughs> For me, it's anything that has mountains and countryside anywhere in the world, as long as I've got a place to climb. <laughs> Excellent. As in hiking, climbing or bouldering, climbing? Uh, hiking, hiking, type climbing. Yeah. Mm. 
So let's move on to your work and your background. So we met for a coffee, which was nice. And you told me that you had a career in marketing for many years before you decided to change course. So what were the reasons that you decided to change your career? And I believe it was around the age of 40. Mm. Yep, that's right. So it was about 15 years ago and I, um, I quite enjoyed marketing, actually, and um, it was just more my entire life I've had this restless um, interest in psychology, mm-hmm. just always humans interest me. And so the marketing side, that bit was really satisfied in there around the psychology of marketing. Um, and it was really then once I had my own children and then started consuming quite a few books around child psychology mm-hmm. – that led me into thinking maybe I'd actually work in this space. Okay. And isn't that interesting that at the age of 40, you still have a whole, you know, time for another career, mm. which is wonderful, isn't it? Mm, mm, isn't it? So how did you go about making the change? What did you study? Mm. So I originally thought I'd become a psychologist. So I looked into that and Whilst I was researching, I stumbled across life coaching, which 15 years ago wasn't terribly well known. And uh, it just really resonated with me, the subtle Mm -hmm. difference. So there's definitely a place for both. It's not one better or worse. Um, Psychology is primarily a deficit focus around what's wrong and how do we overcome that. And then life coaching was more around what do we already do well and what are our Mm -hmm. strengths and talents and how can we build on those? And that just sat more with me. Um, So, yeah, I decided to do life coaching. And then from there, it didn't exist 15 years ago, not not very broadly. Mm -hmm. And I stumbled then across positive psychology, which was a newer science. And as soon as there were qualifications available in Australia, I studied that and that's been amazing. Excellent. And I do want to talk about that in a minute as well. But first, um, was it nerve wracking for you to leave, I guess, a solid career and a steady income to take this leap into the unknown? Mm-hmm. That's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> I have to really attribute that to my husband yeah. because alone, I don't know I would have been brave enough to make that decision, but it was his unfaltering belief um, of me and in me and support and encouragement that gave me the foundation to take that step. Yeah. But yes, I was nervous for sure. Wow, that that's so lovely that you had that support mm. in him. Yeah, because um, I imagine people without that support, as you said, may not feel the confidence to take such a, a leap. Mm. Mm. And I work with clients all the time in that space. Right. Yeah, it is difficult for sure. And you've lived it. So that's, that's yes. very interesting as well. So you mentioned positive psychology and a lot of your work centers around that. You also said that it's a relatively new, a newcomer in the psychology space in the world of neuroscience. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what the origins of positive psychology are? How did Mm. it come about? Mm. So the person considered kind of, I guess, the founder or father of positive psychology is Martin Seligman. And he was then a psychologist. And there's uh, a book called DSM Manual for Psychology, which oh, lists, yes. yeah, it's so thick, that book, yeah. and it's got all of the things that can go wrong with us from a mental health perspective. And he just um, took over at the American Psychological Association, and as part of your charter with that, you're encouraged to um, explore something new, and, mm-hmm. and, and he just went, 
So if we've got this list of all the things that are wrong with us, are there also things that are right with us as humans? And he explored that and that, um, you know, saw the beginning of positive psychology because, yes, there are lots of things that are commonly good in humans. That's so interesting because when you say that, it sounds so obvious, but, but for the person who first had that thought, Martin Seligman, it's extraordinary, isn't it, to go against the mould. Oh, and, hugely. Yeah. And that was only back in the year 2000. It's, it's really, in terms of science, it's nothing. But you're right, that the context, there's, if you, I, I can't remember the exact um, statistics, but I remember hearing him talk about back then, if you Googled psychology, there was just all it would list is every possible thing that could go wrong with you. <laughs> and there was uh, barely any papers whatsoever existed on the things that go well and how can you Mm. develop those. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, humans are good at many things. Like Some people are really resilient, Mm. some seem happy. And you do want to think, well, how do they achieve that? Is that something we can apply Mm. to others? Mm. So can you explain a little bit more? You've, You've touched on it, but what's the difference between positive psychology and traditional psychology Mm. the way I like to look at it I think if we have um, let's consider zero is we're neither happy nor unhappy and let's say minus 10 is as unhappy as we can get and Mm. plus 10 is as happy as we can Mm -hmm. be so we actually have um, a predisposition toward the negative um, our brain does it's very much a survival um, mechanism it was very helpful in our origins yep. um, to be alert for anything that might be going to eat us or yep. attack us um, so with that with that negative bias of the brain we'll tend to sit more in the, the low minuses minus one minus two right if things go bad or you know can, lot isn't going well in our life we can drop into further minuses and that's where you would see a psychologist right to help you with these things that are wrong and the their aim is to remove, to clear the things that are wrong in a hope to get you back to maybe zero. Right. Whereas positive psychology works on the premise that what if we could build you into plus one, plus three? What if you could even be at plus seven? And there's all sorts of tools and strategies to do that, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. later. But if I can sit, let's say, imagine I could sit on a daily basis at around about a plus seven and then... When bad things happen, because they do, so it's really important, actually, Amanda, that I mention right here, that positive psychology is not the premise that we must be happy yeah, all the time. Yeah, of course. Yeah, mm. it's just saying, um, as a general sense of well-being, I sit more in the positive, and then when the bad things happen, because they will in life, yes. I might go from plus seven to plus two. But if I was already sitting, say, at minus one and the bad thing happens, I might go to minus six. And that's a much darker place to come back from. Yeah. Well, let's talk a bit then about happiness. You did say it's not the natural state for us to be happy Mm. all the time. But it's in the world that we live in, we're we're, um, bombarded by social media images and it can feel like we're expected to be perennially happy. Mm. But back to the basics, before we dive into that a bit more, what is happiness? Mm. It's it, it's such a good point you make, and, and, and I feel really passionate about this. I talk to people all the time about if we have a pursuit of happiness, the irony is it will often make us feel less happy if that's mm. our single-minded 
pursued. We, we, if we build this sense that if I'm not happy, there's something wrong with me, then that leads to less happiness. Yeah. So in this context, and I, that's why I'll often refer to, I'll, I'll say well-being or other yeah. words than happiness, because they often accidentally can conjure up this um, image of you must be smiling. Um, so I guess to differentiate um, happiness, we can either have happy states or traits. Mm-hmm. So a happy state would be if you and I just had a laugh about something, told a joke, and in that moment, I'm clearly happy, and that's a momentary state yes. of happiness. Or if I have a, my coffee in the morning, <laughs> it makes me happy. Um, a trait of happiness is just when you have this underpinning sense that my life is going well, despite the challenge I might be having right now. Right. So I can cope with what's in front of me, but I have this underpinning sense that life is okay, though. That that's the sort of happiness that we're talking about here. Yeah, so it's a more grounded meaning of the word rather than what we might see. Mm. And do people have different or set levels of happiness or well-being? Mm. They actually do. Um, we we tend to have um, a, a predetermined set, set level of happiness. Mm-hmm. Now, th- momentary things can lift that or drop that, sure. but we'll generally return to our set point. The good news about positive psychology is, and this is based in a lot of work by Professor Sonia Lieber-Miski, who will say, we can reset our happiness set point by doing intentional, um, using intentional tools and strategies, which again, I'll talk about Mm. some after, won't leave everyone hanging, but (laughs) we can do things that that will increase our happiness set point. But yes, there there is, it's... um, Roughly, um, Lieber-Miski's work would say we have about a 50% genetic predisposition to whether we're half glass full or half glass empty. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. I was I was actually wondering about that because I also think that's really important for people to know and understand because if, you, if your set point is, say, lower than your friend's set point, mm. then you may beat yourself up a bit because you think, oh, I'm not, you know... By trying to be happier, you're becoming unhappier, as you said earlier. So yeah. it's probably good not to compare yourself with others either in that way. So much research around the detrimental effect of comparisons. Mm. The only time comparisons are psychologically helpful is when they provide sort of an aspirational component where you think, ah, what traits do they have that I'd like to have more of that? And we try and emulate or rise to that. That's not what our brain generally does. Generally, we do the comparison and we feel lesser because of it. That's not helpful. Just hearing that just makes me think straight away of social media. Mm I think for someone my age, you, you know, it doesn't have as much as of an impact, but for young people, it can have, I imagine, a huge impact. It's real. There's so much research now mm. supporting a very, very negative impact, mm. particularly in the teen years. Um, there's a particular um, part of the brain that's forming at that time that it's a transition between belonging to your nuclear family mm-hmm. before you're a fully-fledged adult belonging to your new family that you make. Yes. The transitional period um, places a higher um, sensitivity to belonging to your friendship group. So the need to conform and to fit in becomes 
larger than any other period of your life. So comparisons form this, oh, I've got to look like that, I've got to yeah. be like that. So it's quite a restless feeling. Yeah, and it makes it particularly hard for the kids that, that don't fit that sort of mo- the ideal mould, doesn't it? Oh, it really does. It saddens me so much. I speak in schools around this to try and help young people. It's not, there's definitely no point in saying don't be on social media because that's here to stay. It's just more around how can you manage your time on there. For instance, if, if you like a post or uh, and, and comment on it in a positive way. Oh, that looks like you're having a great holiday or they look like great new shoes. Where did you get those? That can help diminish the sense that I'm not as good as that. Okay. Well, that's interesting to know. Yeah. It's, I mean, as you say, it's here to stay. So as parents or teachers mm. or counselors, we need to have some strategies to support our mm. teenagers. So I just want to uh, quote you back to yourself. <laughs> Don't you love that when your kids do that? That's the worst. (laughs) It is, isn't it? So on your website, you say, happiness is your right, achieving it is your responsibility. We can't rely on external circumstances or people to make us happy. It's within all of us. It's simply a matter of knowing how. So what do you mean when you say we can't rely on external circumstances or people to make us happy? What I mean by that, I, I... Reference again Lieber Mieske's work as well as another professor, Sean Aker, who have done a lot of work in the space to show it's a very human trait to place our happiness on the other side of something mm-hmm. and that something is usually material something. Yeah. So not always, I mean, it can be relationship something as well, but when I get that new job, I'll be happy. When I get the new car, I'll be happy. When I get the new relationship, I'll be happy. And we, we always anticipate that our happiness is connected with that thing and then we'll be all right. And the research will consistently show that sadly that's not true. Mm. And in fact, what's interesting is it's the exact opposite. It's when I'm happy now in this moment that the, that the relationship will come into my life, that the right job will yeah. I'll attract and so on. So so by that, I mean, the and the circumstances around you, they no circumstance carries... Um, an emotion with it is literally only our interpretation of the situation or the circumstance that creates our emotional response and chemical response to that. So if we're able to more objectively appreciate what we have in front of us right now and try and tame that natural side of our brain that wants to always think something's better later on, and using so one of the tools is gratitude for example mm-hmm. and I, people are probably tired of hearing about gratitude but it, I, you, I can't under um, play the, it's it's significant importance so let's just use that as one example yes. so in this moment right now instead of focusing on um, let's say I was really unhappy in my job and I know when I get my new job I'm happy rather I could look at okay, my current job might not be the best, but what's good in it? Well, I've got my workmate that I really like. And even if we went ridiculously simple, well, I get fresh hygienic water at my work. You know, I know that sounds a bit small, but not everyone in the world gets an option just to turn on a tap and have yeah. good water, all those sorts of things. So you make a, a choice in your head around... Um, noticing how much good we all have in front of us all the time. Mm, I think particularly here in Australia, Mm. we're very, very lucky. It sounds a little bit Buddhist-like to Mm. me. 
you mm. know, appreciating the moment. And in Buddhism, they talk very much about your mind. And just as you say, it's within your control how you react to mm. a situation. And my favorite quote, which I know I've brought up before on this podcast, is want what you have, don't want what you don't have. I love that. It's really good, isn't it? It's so simple, but it it speaks volumes, I Mm -hmm. think, just appreciating, as you said, what's around you. Mm. So then if someone is struggling a bit in life, they um, maybe feel unfulfilled or they would like to improve their well-being, how can a life coach, or you in other words, help that person find the the happiness within themselves? Mm. So many different tools and strategies, but it uh, one of the foundational ones that I particularly love is this. This was a piece of work by Martin Seligman specifically, and and um, Chris Peterson with him. Um, we all they've discovered that we all have every human, regardless of race, gender, culture, um, is we all share twenty four strengths of character, and. I love that piece of work, A, because it's a free, so you can go on to a website and complete the survey mm-hmm. and, and it's free and you can it'll list your 24 strengths. We all have them, but yes. it'll list the order of preference yes. with which you use them. So that um, that website's www.via or via... Uh, sorry, oh, I'm don't sorry. worry. I'll, I'll find <laughs> it. I, I'm pretty sure I've done that. Yeah, um, via character.org. Yeah. Is. Um, Yes. So that once you know what your top five strengths are, then you can lean into those intentionally Mm -hmm. because your top strengths are very innate to who you are. They, you feel very energized, very engaged when you're in them. So if you can uh, use them in your work or with your relationships, knowing what your top ones are and intentionally bringing them in, then life just feels much easier. Because mm. if you were in a job where you weren't honouring those um, those traits, then you can see how difficult that would be for someone. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So, and so, but the good thing is that even if you were currently in a job that perhaps didn't call upon your top strengths, once you know what they are, you can internally choose to bring them to that role without even needing to talk to your manager about yeah. it or anything, and it can make your role feel more satisfying. Mm. Oh, that's so that's so good, isn't it? I like these I like the concept that you don't have to make a radical change all the mm. time. It's about reframing mm. how you see what you're already doing. Mm. Mm. If we talk about some some practical tools and strategies, I, I've come up with a few, I guess, scenarios or things that I'd like to ask you about, mm. Steph. So one of the ones I think that would interest a lot of listeners is the world news. So at the moment, when we switch on the world news, there are so many stories of destruction and despair. There's COVID, obviously, the floods in Queensland and New South Wales, the the war in the Ukraine, and just the devastation we're seeing every mm. day on the television it can feel really overwhelming and it also sometimes makes you feel like the world is just hopeless and grim. So do you have any suggestions to counter that? Mm. It's a really good question because I mentioned earlier that we have a negativity bias in our brain. So, of course, news is primarily negative. It is. Mm. And, And it is based on 
that predisposition of our brain because it hooks us in. That's that's what's going to get us to listen to the news, not if they did a whole service about what's going well. So it's intentionally um, there to grab our negative interest. Of course, the flow-on effect of that from an emotional perspective is it, you, it's hard to feel really good when you're just watching such terrible things oh, happen. Mm. So I often suggest to my clients is really, really try and minimize your news consumption. Now, obviously, we have to have some awareness about what's going on in the world. Yeah, sure. So I find it striking a balance between completely burying your head and being consumed by negative messages all the time. So I use um, an app that just gives me a summary of the yeah. news headlines. So I've, I'm just across the high level headlines, but I'm not, I don't follow the links. I don't look at the images intentionally. Um, so minimizing your time, actually consuming news mm-hmm. and, and conversely, I suppose with that negative bias is trying really hard to hunt out, seek for things that lift your brain, that right. lift your mood. So whether there's any success stories or whether even if it's just a podcast that you I follow a um there's it brings me daily joy there's something on Instagram called the kangaroo sanctuary are you familiar with it no every day there's they save orphaned kangaroos and they just have images every day of these gorgeous little kangaroos and that literally brings my heart joy looking at them every day so i try and have my feed filled with things like that yes without burying my head to what's going on in the world yeah oh that's really good advice because because of the negativity bias we can just keep on it's like going down a rabbit hole Mm. isn't it I can sometimes get so sucked into the news. I can't stop. I watch one channel, then I'll flick to the next and watch all the same stories that I've just seen, but I just keep on going. Related to that a little bit is I think the advice you've given is really good. The problem for me, and I imagine other people may have this problem, is if you live with someone who my husband is obsessed with news. Mm. He has it on all the time. And sometimes I just want to turn it off you know mm. and mm. so maybe I need to have a chat with him about that mm. he would benefit if he could watch yeah. less so yes I'd encourage a conversation and if not you know if you can put in your own headphones and not be not be exposed to it yeah. if you can okay mm. the other thing I wanted to to touch on is women there is I know there's research out there that supports what I'm about to say but uh, women tend to be very hard on themselves we are often very self-critical and we do set extremely high standards for ourselves. So why is that? Do you have a theory on why women are like that? Hmm. It, it, it definitely is a lot of research to support that. Obviously, it's not just the domain of women. However, no. I love the one there's research in the space of um, applying for a job and it doesn't apply to everybody, but generally with women, there might be, say, eight criteria Mm -hmm. and they'll go oh I've got this one this one this one they'll have seven of the eight and then they'll go oh I haven't got the eighth one I can't apply men will and I'm generalizing of course but Mm. generally men will go oh I've got the first four I've kind of done the fifth one a little bit I'll wing the others (laughs) and apply for the job and we'll apply confidently not not sheepishly because I don't know I don't think I've got all eight um so yes there's there's a lot of evidence that women do I'm not sure 
what sits under that from a psychological perspective other than my best guess is women are genetically wired as the carers. Um, We have a broader sensitivity to emotions. Uh, So, you know, whether it's linked in with that, but it, it definitely exists. Yeah, no, it does, doesn't it? And is there any ways then, if it's true that it does exist, that we can address this and try and, you know, help ourselves a mm. bit? <laughs> For sure. There's probably two things that I would suggest are the most effective. There's mm-hmm. lots of different things, I mean, really coming back to the, the how we talk to ourselves in yeah. our head. But you're linked to that. So two things I'd say is there's a piece of work by a lady called Professor Kristen Neff who talks very much about self-compassion. Um, we tend to have quite a strong internal critic. We, we're our own harshest critic. Nobody probably would speak to us in the way we no. speak to ourselves. So what self-compassion is about is catching and noticing when you're being harsh or critical or judgmental on yourself internally and just gently pausing and finding a softening for that. So firstly, gently acknowledging, mm-hmm. wow, look at what I'm trying to do to myself right now. So we're not critical about that in itself, just rather observing right. it. Oh, mm-hmm. listen listen to me being critical. And then affording ourselves a sense of um, love and compassion and support in the same way we would if we heard, say, our very best friend saying those things that we've just said, mm. what would we say to them? You know, and, and saying that to ourselves. So it might be a softening like, wow, I can hear that you're being really hard on yourself around that, but it's okay because, of course, you're nervous going for this interview. That's normal. You've got lots of experience. It'll be all right or something encouraging. And do you think the more we practice that, the better at it we get? Definitely. It's a skill, Amanda. Yeah, yeah. really good point. It, as you develop it, it'll become far more of a reflex for mm-hmm. you. You know, the one I might quickly mention too, because it's so helpful. This is a brain hack that I love. Um, We have bi-directional feedback from our brain to our body and our body to our brain. So in other words, when Mm -hmm. our brain perceives there's something wrong, it will influence the body into a posture that shrinks us. Right. So from that evolutionary perspective, that made me less visible to a predator. And by curling down my chin and um, my shoulders, Mm -hmm. hunching over... I'm also protecting my vital organs. Right. Um, So if we play with that in reverse, despite the fact we might be lacking in confidence, we might have an inner critic, we might not be feeling great. If I push my shoulders back, and I invite you listeners to do it as I'm Mm. saying it, because you can feel it immediately, push your chest out, get your shoulders back and hold your chin up. And that posture feeds back to your brain, oh, I'm confident. And straight away, we cognitively feel stronger. So just holding a confident body posture, despite the fact you don't actually feel like it, will help you to feel better. Wow, that's a great hack. Mm. I'm going to start trying that myself. um, If you look up Amy Cuddy, um, she has a a TED Talk. It's one of the most watched ones on, on that. It's fantastic. Oh, that's amazing. On that topic of the mind-body connection, we know that there's a connection between our physical selves and our minds. And it's important to look after all aspects of our health, including our nutrition, our sleep, our mental health and our movement, or in other words, exercise. So I'd like to hear your advice on how each of these play into our happiness and well-being and your tips on the best way 
that listeners can look after these particular aspects of our well-being? Mm. Thank you for asking that question because <laughs> it couldn't make me happier. <laughs> I I know I sort of sense particularly when I'm talking with workshops or with groups and people sort of start to roll their eyes when I talk about, you know, sleep, diet and exercise, because I think that we can confidently say everybody knows we need to exercise, we need to sleep and we need to eat well. I just wanted to add, I guess, hopefully um, another perspective which might help provide even greater reason to Mm -hmm. do those things. And that is they're directly linked to our mental health as much as our physical health. And, I would suggest if your listeners did nothing else other than look after those three things, sleep, diet, and exercise, you feel your brain will feel significantly brighter and happier. So really briefly, with sleep, that's probably your core foundational yeah. piece. Most people are chronically short of sleep, yeah. and it has such a significant effect, and we're very, very poor um, readers of our own, of the impact of, of bad sleep on us. So with sleep, all I'd suggest in, in a very brief way is setting our circadian rhythm. So we have a 24 hour circadian rhythm that determines, uh, which chemicals we excrete at which particular times that either wake us up or help us go to sleep. And the more we can set that rhythm, the better we'll sleep at night. So a really simple, highly effective way to do that is just expose your eyes to light first thing in the morning. Mm -hmm. As soon as there's sunlight, and I'm talking maybe five minutes. It doesn't have to, on a really cloudy, dull day, maybe 10 to 15 on a bright, sunny day, five minutes is enough. It has to be outdoors through a window. Uh, windows cut out about 50% of the effect. So outdoors, um, and if you're up well before the sun is, then get on as many bright lights around you as you can, like get your house lit up. But as soon as there's sun, get it head out there. So that helps the brain know very clearly it's daytime. Right. And then at the other end of the day, as soon as the sun's gone down, please, please hide your eyes from the light. So a very simple way of doing that is blue block glasses. Yeah. Not the best look. Ask my kids because they tease me about it all the time, but very effective. It'll block out all of the blue and green light. Uh, If not that, though, as a minimum, please remove yourself from screens that emit blue light. So that's your phone, computers, TV, a good hour before bed, preferably from once the sun goes down. Um, and get off your overhead lights. Um, if you need to have light, have lamps low because the receptors for the light sit at the top of our eyelids So um, for the sun. So anything light that's above our head is more replicating the sun. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. I hadn't ever heard about the position of the lights. Mm. Mm. Honestly, if you just do that for your sleep, you'll find you'll sleep much more deeply and trying to um, go to bed and rise at roughly yeah. the same time each day. Yeah, I know. I think um, of all the things I've learned through doing this podcast, sleep is the one that probably comes up the most often in terms of how we can look after ourselves better. Mm. So I've been focusing a lot on that mm. lately. Mm. And, and I think the other thing about sleep is giving yourself permission to prioritize it. Whereas in this, you know, this busy culture we live in, it was often the thing that that got neglected, Mm. I think. There was almost a badge of honour around how little sleep I need. 95% of all people need eight hours sleep. And I would say 80% of all my clients 
tell me that they're the sort of people that only need five or six. (laughs) It's not right. We don't think we do, but we do. So yes, prioritizing sleep and settling yourself well before bedtime. Don't Mm. work manically up till bed and then get into bed and think your brain's going to switch off. Right. Yeah. And and then the other two just really quickly. So um, diet, everyone knows it. Try and if possible, eat organic or clean food and really stack up your vegetables yeah. and minimize your meat and that that's from a health perspective not um not from an animal cruelty perspective or anything also there's all sorts of other reasons but yeah. from a health perspective well, we're better off with less meat particularly at night time it's very very hard for our stomach to digest meat and so a lot of energy is required so if our body's using energy to digest a big meal right when we've gone to bed that in- disrupts the level of sleep we can get and so. the repair that our body does and during sleep Mm. That's right. So, so yeah, lots of veg, um, minimize um, processed foods and sugars, really. Yeah. And mm. everyone knows those things. Uh, and exercise is just simple. It's just moving. moving. I think we overcomplicate exercise. Um, I, th- there's often a perception I have to be hurting or I have to be, you know, g- doing something that I'm, I don't necessarily enjoy. I can't stress enough. Exercise is simply moving on a daily basis. It's You've got to be puffing a little bit, but do something you love because otherwise you're not going to keep doing it. Absolutely. That's brilliant advice. I mean, finding something you love is really the key. Yes. And it doesn't really matter what it is, whether it's mm. kayaking or hiking or walking your dog every day or whatever it is. Totally. Mm. Dancing while you're vacuuming. Yeah, dancing. (laughs) (laughs) The incidental uh, exercise is amazing. You know, just take the stairs instead of the elevator. There's there's so much more evidence now that shows the benefits of exercise are cumulative. So we used to think, oh, I have to do 20 or 30 minutes in one hit. And we don't. We can Mm. just do a few minutes here, a few minutes there. I you know, it's a bit, I know I'm probably a little strange, but I'll like lunge between my bedroom to the bathroom. Oh, not strange. <laughs> <Okay>, a little. <laughs> I'll squat while I'm brushing my teeth. So you can just get in these little incidental bits of exercise. There, in fact, one of the other guests I interviewed last year, Martin Gabala, he is um, researching into high-intensity interval training mm-hmm. and, and short bursts called exercise snacks, and that's exactly the kind of thing mm-hmm. that he talks about. So. Mm. That was really interesting. And Steph, before you came on, I uh, spoke to, well, I set, put a post on Instagram asking if anyone wanted to ask you a question. Mm. So I did I did receive some responses. So there's there's two I'd like to, to put to you. The first one is from uh, Jessica Lee from the, the Spark Effect. And she said she'd like some advice on how to find happiness amidst chronic physical pain. That lot that is a really common question. So and and I probably need to preface this by saying this isn't my field of absolute expertise, but I, I it interests me a lot. Yeah. So I'll share with you what I know from an mm-hmm. interest perspective and what I've worked with my clients on, which is it's very much that mindfulness um, state is where obviously pain because it's painful, it it calls our attention. So we tend to look at it and we tend to tense up. So by looking at it and tensing up, it accidentally magnifies the pain. So doing the opposite can just be really helpful, which is to take a breath and try and intentionally relax 
your body with the out breath, just letting your body release. And then seeing if you can sit alongside the pain and observe it in a completely non-judgmental mm-hmm. way. So it is neither good nor bad. It just is. And I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to get curious. Curiosity is the most amazing attribute we can bring toward anything uncomfortable, actually, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain. Sitting there, taking a breath and looking at, let me just look at you, pain. If, if you had a color, I wonder what color you'd be. If you had a shape, well, what shape would you be? I just going to sit here and notice Mm -hmm. you and in doing that it seems almost counterintuitive because sometimes people will say oh gosh you kidding me if I turn and look at it it's going to you know explode and it actually does the opposite it it helps it subside that just shows how intricately tuned our brains are Mm. to to our bodies and how Mm -hmm. we can you know, mani- I don't know if manipulates the right word, but influence the way we think and that influences the way we, we feel. That's right, mm. very much. Mm. And the second question I had was from Eliza Richards, and she is um, a highly sensitive person. So she asked for some tips about how highly sensitive people can stop the negativity because they have to try extra hard to do this. Mm. Do I have permission to go a little bit left of centre with this answer? Yeah, of course. You don't need my permission. (laughs) (laughs) So I, my personal belief, and I'm basing this belief on the clients that I see, I am just increasingly and increasingly having this question asked of me. And it is generally of a younger and younger generation. I think the next generation is here. My hope and belief is they're actually here with this heightened sensitivity because they're going to be the ones that save all of us and we're going to need to be that sensitive to to mother nature to mother earth respectful that's the only way we're going to survive i think and they're here to do that now it's a blessing and a curse being highly sensitive it brings you this beautiful connection with humans however it is you need to learn how to manage it mm-hmm. or you get infected by yeah. other people's negative emotions because of your extra sensitivity. So there's a really beautiful meditation that I can suggest mm-hmm. that protects our um, aura from being penetrated by negative emotions. So it's helpful for anyone, whether you're highly sensitive or not, but particularly highly sensitive people. So is that, can I just briefly yeah, describe please, that? Yeah, please, please do. Okay, so amazingly what, what you do is I normally just do it sitting on the edge of my bed. Um, I usually start my day doing this because I'm in contact with a lot of clients during the day. And a lot of people, they're coming to see me because they're not in a good place. Yes. So I have, you know, accidentally negative energy around me. Um, so if you first, you just close your eyes and um, try and sort of without hunting for it, but feel into where your aura lies around you, where your energy extends to. Mm-hmm. Our energy emanates out from us and it. the more depressed we are, the closer it is to our body. Right. The more positive and up we are, the further it comes out. And often highly sensitive people can have quite a big aura. So it's um, there's a bigger space to catch other people's emotions. I see. So if you kind of just close your eyes and don't, don't worry too much if you can't feel it, but see if you can just sort of feel into mm-hmm. where your energy ends. And what we want to do, if it's too big, see if you can pull it in. I mean, if you, if, if your listeners could see me, I'm using my arms. I literally 
cup my arms in the air, like I'm pulling my energy in to what would be, if you imagine an, an egg shape all the way around you, so a little bit smaller at the top, going a bit wider midway and going under, that you want your aura in that kind of egg shape. So I'll pull my aura around, um, around about an arm's length from my body. So that's how far we want it out. So if it's further than an arm's length, pull it in. If it's less than an arm's length, you can kind of push it out a little bit. You just want to, you just want to sense on your energy there. As I said, if that feels tricky, don't worry too much about the edge of it. The next step is more important. That then imagine that the sun's rays are like sprinkling down on you, like from a shower head, mm-hmm. and we're really picking up the violet ray. We want that violet ray of the sun to sprinkle over the outside of the eggshell, if you like, of the aura, and have this beautiful violet light now going around our aura. And so the violet light is very protective of our negative energies. So if we just really imagine this beautiful blue or violet light now is all around the outside of our eggshell, around Mm -hmm. our body, And you just take that into your day and it really does help protect your energy. I love the sound of that. When you said imagining the sunlight sprinkling down on you, Mm. does does that mean it's better to do this outside or is it just more something, an image that you're thinking of? It's definitely fine with an image. Anytime you can get outdoors and anytime you can get your feet on earth and your body in the sun, that's going to be good for your soul and your energy anyway. So probably is enhanced doing it outside. Mm. Oh, I love that advice. So hopefully if Eliza's listening, she'll try that mm. and it, it will be helpful for her. Steph, I think it's time for us to, to land this plane. <laughs> so thank you for addressing those listener questions. And I know that you were a lifelong netball player, but a few years ago you switched to sprinting, as you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast. And I know you're very modest, but you are an accomplished master's athlete and you've won some gold medals. Mm. So how, how on earth did you take up sprinting? How does that happen? I know I took it up at 50, which is, (laughs) I didn't really think I'd ever pick up a new sport then. It was really just because my son was sprinting at the time and his coach just said to me, I was playing netball and because my son was training and i don't like just sitting still. So I would just come in my running gear and I just move around. And his coach said to me, look, you've kind of got the physique of a sprinter. Do you want to join us? And I was thinking, well, all of your squad are like teenagers and I'm 50, probably not. But thankfully my son was pretty keen. He was like, that'd be cool, mum. So thanks to him and the coach, I joined in and found out a, that I could do it, and B, that I love it. Yeah, that's fantastic. So how often do you train in a typical week? Uh, so we're on the track three times a week and in the gym twice a week. Wow, oh, that's amazing. Mm. I love that. Um, I recently read Hugh Van Kylenberg's mm. books, and I know that he does some sprint training as well. In a similar story, he's training with a whole lot of much younger women. <laughs> that he kind of tries to keep up with. Yes, I have evolved since then. I'm with a master's running group now, so there's a lot of people more my age. <laughs> feels a little more appropriate, but it was fun starting with the young ones. Oh, that's, that's so great. I love that story. So do you still play netball or, or 
was it just too much and you've moved away from that? <sighs> Look, I, I've, I have not used the word retired from netball because I've literally played for 47 years netball. Wow. I, sorry, 43 years. I loved it. So not retired, but they're not complimentary at all, sprinting and netball. Oh, I so bet they're not. I've just paused netball, may or may not get back yeah, to it. Yeah. I mean, netball's notorious for injuries, isn't it? it? Yeah, I was so lucky. That's, maybe I shouldn't go back because I didn't ever really have anything major. Maybe um, you're like Ash Barty, quit while you're yeah, ahead. So I'm a touch older than her when I quit. Yeah. Uh, so, Steph, who, who inspires you? Do you know, probably the, in terms of sprinting, I think there are some women in our group that are in their 70s and 80s. Wow. And they are phenomenal. I mean, they run like people in their 20s. And without exception, whenever I look at them, I just it just keeps this massive sense of hope for what's possible. It makes you realize you don't have to get old and get and not and be in a walking frame. You just got to keep moving. Yeah. Now I know what you mean. The, the same when I line up at the start of whatever it is, whether it's a triathlon or a trail running race, there's often people in their 70s there. Mm. I mean, there's not a huge group of them, but no. there's always a handful and to me, they're the most remarkable mm. people out there. I mm. just think, I want to be like you. That's right. Yeah. And there's no reason you can't yeah. be. Yeah, yeah. The final question that I like to ask all my guests is if you could recommend two things that people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be? Outside of the things we spoke about, I would say just be super careful with your thoughts we did touch on this. I just really want to reiterate, just super careful with your thoughts all the time in terms of just noticing what we can't control is the first thing that comes into our head. But recognizing that we are then in the driver's seat for what we do with that. We're not mm -hmm. at the mercy of our brain that will want to just take us off into a negative spiral. We have a choice to say, no, hang on a minute, what's another way I could see this? What's another way I could approach this? Um, recognizing that we can control where our thoughts go is very empowering. And along that line, and I know I have spoken about it, but I just want to reiterate it, is really genuinely pausing to look at what I have in this moment right now to be thankful for. And the bit I want to just expand on that from that I didn't say earlier is to feel into that feeling. It can't just be a cognitive exercise. If you just go, oh, yeah, okay, I'm grateful for water, mm. actually nothing happens. But if you just pause, I often shut my eyes and really, I know, usually put my hand on my heart because that does help amplify authentic heart energy. And I just feel into, this is actually amazing. I'm really lucky. If you do that, drip that, through the throughout the day then that keeps your brain in such an optimal brain yeah. state the thing that i love about that message steph is that it's such a simple solution or mm. such a, a, an easy thing to do isn't it mm, and it, it is. and it can have such an enormous impact on our well-being that's right yeah. And it is important just to remind, though, it doesn't mean we can't have negative things happen. Yeah. They do and they will and that's normal and it's fine. It's about sitting with those but then not dining out in them, then making a choice. I've felt this and it, and it's and I've lived through it and now I'm doing something intentional to lift myself out. Yeah. And I also think maybe, and you can correct me 
if I'm wrong, it's probably okay if something bad happens in your life to wallow in it for a little while before you, you know, to sort of acknowledge those thoughts and feelings Mm. before you then go, okay, and then start challenging those thoughts, I guess. Yeah, really good point. It's not only okay, it's essential. Otherwise, we don't um, resolve those emotions. They actually sit there squashed in us. So Mm. it's not an invitation to say, push that one away and let's focus on something I'm grateful for. It absolutely let the feeling move through you completely. So sometimes we need to have a good cry or a good yell, talk to a friend The difference, though, is once we start to whinge about it, complain about it, keep percolating on it, ruminate on it, that's when it shifts into being unhelpful. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's great advice. So, Steph, if someone listening to this podcast would like to follow what you do and look at your website, what's the best way for them to do that? Mm. So my website is livelifecoaching.com.au. I put posts up there on um, my Facebook so it's the same live mm-hmm. life coaching um, put up often not daily but posts of reminders of these types of tools and interventions Excellent. the one that I think are most helpful great so and I will put links to all of that in the show notes so Steph thank you so much for coming on Vibrant Lives podcast today I've really enjoyed our chat I've had a ball thank you very much for inviting me <laughs> thank you thank you for listening today I hope you enjoyed my conversation with life coach Steph Noon and learnt some useful tips to enhance your happiness and well-being. If you did, please tell your friends about the podcast and share it. And if you could take a minute to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it will help people find my podcast and I'm always so grateful for that. So you can subscribe to Vibrant Lives Podcast on most good podcast providers like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, iHeartRadio and Google Podcasts and you can also subscribe on YouTube and please do follow me on Instagram at vibrant underscore lives underscore podcast and check out my website at vibrantlivespodcast.com. On my website you'll find a library of all my podcast episodes and reviews of books I recommend and more. So please DM me or send me an email via the contacts page on my website And let me know what you'd like to hear more of or if you just want to say hi. Coming up soon, I'm interviewing David Richman about his project called Cycle of Lives. And for this, he rode his bicycle approximately 5,000 miles, that's 8,000 kilometres, across the United States to raise money and awareness for cancer. It was a phenomenal feat and a really interesting story. So I'm looking forward to that one. This podcast is recorded on ancient Ghana land. I acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of this land and pay respects to their elders past, present and future. Thank you for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.